This episode of Science Moab was made possible by a STEM action grant from the Society for Science. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about the culturally important peyote plant, where it's found, and the efforts to protect it with Dawn Davis. I'm Dawn D. Davis. I am a tribal citizen of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. I call myself a Nua, which essentially means the people in Shoshone. I am also a mother, a microfarmer, and I just recently finished my PhD at the University of Idaho for my dissertation entitled The Peyote Path, A Nua Perspective on a Medicinal Plant in Peril which essentially looked at the decline of peyote, Lophophora williamsi, uh, in its native habitat, but also looking at stakeholders, primarily landowners and Native American church members, looking at um, the perspectives of perpetuation of wild populations of peyote, also looking at the concerns It also delved into issues of decriminalization. It delved into issues of, you know, continued extraction and appropriation of the Native American church practice. And how can we look at conservation and preservation that is done in a way that is sustainable, but it's also done in a way that's respectful to its users and also respectful to the plant. In looking at your bio and kind of the things you work on, you you talk about yourself as someone who works on the sustainability of ethno-significant plants. And I was wondering, you know, if you could kind of explain what what that means. Why why are some plants or all plants or what what does ethno-significant really mean for, for you and for the research that you do? I think that all things are important. I think all things are significant, right? Like everything is connected. We're not just, we're not disconnected from our environment. I think a lot of native American people are not. And so I was raised by my grandparents and I'm, I'm their oldest grandchild. And so I was raised in a home where Shoshone was spoken Every day, my grandparents, that's how they talked with one, one another, was they, they spoke Shoshone. In, in growing up that way, we were required to learn Shoshone. And so I was very lucky in that regard because of, there's a, you know, a lot of people my age who weren't so lucky that they had the language spoken in their, their, their home, their childhood home. You know, we learned from a very young age that we were a part of our environment. We weren't separated from it. And so everything that we did, there was a, there was a purpose. There was always intention. And so one of the first things that we learned as children was this importance of water. And so water for us, for me and for my family and for many Native American people is water is medicine. And so I always say that, you know, I have two important medicines in my life, water being the first medicine and then peyote being the second medicine. The phrase that water is life, and it's so true, everything around us is made up of water. And so if we can't take care of something that sustains us, that we couldn't live 
beyond four days without, how are we going to take care of everything else in our life if we're not able to recognize the importance of water? And and so when I think about ethno-significance, I think about just like the basis of my my teachings is that we have to take care of the things that take care of us. And water and peyote are two of those things in my life that I, I really give a lot of reverence to. Can you talk a little bit more about peyote and just give us a, a an image of, of what you're talking about, where it's found and kind of the habitat that you would, or the place that you would find it in? Yeah, so peyote is a cactus. It is a very low growing cactus. It grows very close to the ground. It can be in a greenish gray color. I've also heard that it can also be blue. And so the peyote that I'm familiar with is this is this greenish gray colored peyote. And it, to me, it's, it's one of the most beautiful cacti ever. It's uh, spineless, so it doesn't have any needles, but it, it grows, like I said, very close to the ground and it grows in a very similar to a carrot. So it has this subterranean root that is very similar to what a carrot looks like. And so that's where it stores all of its water. And it's a plant that is self-pollinating which means that it has male and female characteristics. And it's just, it's just a beautiful plant. Um, it flowers pink and white flowers, and it grows in the United States. It grows in South Texas in an area that is commonly referred to by many Native American people as the Peyote Gardens. And its natural range actually extends into central Mexico. And so there's less than 20% of its natural habitat that exists in the United States, and that is in Texas. And where Texas is, you know, 95% privately owned, that means that 100% of peyote populations and peyote habitat in Texas resides within private property. You know, I would love to hear kind of the the work and the needs around protecting this plant species and then potentially other ethno-significant plants that you've worked on and kind of what that protection looks like. You touched on it a little bit with that. A lot of it is on private lands, but I'd Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more. With the topic of peyote, there's really so much, so broad. We're talking about not just the Native American church, but we're also talking about private landowners. We're also talking about root plowing. We're talking about wind turbine development, oil and you know fossil fuel development. All of those things are all, you know, even, even feral hogs are impacting peyote populations, right? Are right in the peyote gardens that are having, you know, significant decline on peyote populations. I know that one of the ways that I really advocate for is wild peyote protection, right? And so one of my goals with my research was, you know, reaching out to landowners and trying to gain their understanding and and try to see their perspectives. And that was actually one of the most challenging pieces of my dissertation was trying to meet a landowner. For about eight years, I really struggled with trying to make that connection. And it actually took a connection while I was in Canada 
for me to be connected with someone in Texas. And so it was really this really great experience to have that happen, but it was just sort of, I don't want to say odd, but it was unexpected to make that connection in Canada to someone that was actually really, really influential in helping me meet landowners. One landowner connection rolled over into another landowner connection and it just sort of snowballed that way. It was probably one of the greatest pieces of my research was meeting these landowners because they had such varying perspectives. I met one landowner who wanted to meet me in, you know, the city. Their first interaction with me was, well, I don't have any POD on my property, so why do we want to have this conversation? And I eventually just convinced them to let's just have a coffee. Let's just meet for coffee and we'll go from there. And so we we met. Um, I went, you know, my field work was done with my family. So it was always really nice. And so I went with my family to to meet this landowner. And we talked for about 20 minutes and had this really great conversation about their land and about, you know, how their land came during the Spanish Inquisition. And they're really proud of their property. They're really concerned with, you know, poachers. They're concerned with their privacy and vandalism, all of those things. And so, you know, after talking with this landowner for about 20 or 30 minutes, the landowner was finally like, I do have peyote on my land (laughs) and I want you to come see it. And I was thrilled. I was totally thrilled. It would be it would be great to have, you know, a connection to all the landowners in that area. However, that was, you know, like I said, one of the most challenging components to the research. But the landowners, they are the key holders. They are going to be the ones to really advocate on our behalf, or they could also be, I guess they could also be like a gatekeeper, right? They they hold they hold the key to that. There's a lot of concerns that they have, but nonetheless, they were all very much aware of the POD crisis and and what Native American people are dealing with in regard to access and in regard to uh, depletion and also destruction. So then, you know, from your research and all of these, you know, really important and great conversations that you had what is a model moving forward? What would you like to see? What, what have you, would have you seen as being effective for ensuring these kind of multiple players, you know, multiple people involved in these scenarios, you know, get what, get what they need out of it? I think one of the models that I would love to see is rebuilding the relationship with landowners. Because like I said, it took, took myself as a POD researcher eight years to make contact with a landowner. And I had made many, several trips down there in in the attempt to to meet the landowners. But once I did make the connection with the landowner, it was made very early on that they also had other relationships with other Native American people. And so several of these landowners had informal agreements with other Natives where they would travel to their property and they would be able to harvest on their property. And the landowners that I spoke with, they were totally in favor of that. Several of the landowners actually had shared stories that their grandparents also had that same relationship. But because peyote enacted legalized peyote distributors, it really disconnected Native American people from landowners and it, it created a middleman. 
And so these POD distributors were the ones who were out there serving as POD um, harvesters. So they were out there gathering the medicine, making it fairly easy for Native American people to travel to Texas to acquire their medicine. So they were doing sort of the work. So they were, you know, out there harvesting and then they were providing, you know, a service by um, drying the POD before it's sold, things like that. You know, it made it a... um, a process of convenience for people. And so for decades, while this was happening, it was also really doing it a disservice to the Native American church members because it really disconnected them from the land. I think that that's one of the key pieces in POD conservation and sustainability is reconnecting tribal members and reconnecting Native American church members to the land. Because one of the issues that is happening with POD distributors is that they are harvesting peyote that is not mature. They're harvesting peyote that have not seeded. And so that's reducing propagation to the habitat. And so I think that if there were, you know, more Native American people and more peyotists out there harvesting their own medicine, they would be more cognizant to only harvest those that they know have seeded and that they know are at a, at a mature size. And then also really being aware of consumption. How much are they going to harvest this day? So really that self-regulation is going to take place when you're out there connecting to the land. That, that was my experience with me and my family when we were out harvesting was that we were very much aware of what we were harvesting. However, I do believe that having landowner connections is one one way to recreate and reconnect users to the land, reconnect users to the peyote's home, coming to the peyote's home to see where peyote lives, to see the environment, what it takes for this plant to thrive, and to appreciate that this plant it was growing for many years before it got into our ceremony. And so I think that that's a really important part of that reconnection. And I also think that, you know, another avenue to peyote conservation is land purchases. But that's going to be one of the most expensive avenues for conservation. Not that it can't be done. There are tribes who who have purchased land in an effort to be closer to peyote and to you know, provide some sustainability and, and provide some conservation efforts. And so those would be, you know, two of the ways that I would really encourage Native American church members to engage in is building some of those relationships and in talking, you know, with their tribes about land purchases and talking with their tribes about ways that they can provide conservation that's done in a way that's respectful to their tribal beliefs. And that's also respectful to peyote because that's really what it comes down to is because we believe in the power of this medicine, we should also be conscious of peyote's right to live and its right to live where it grows. So, you know, you, you had touched on earlier kind of some of the issues with the kind of psychedelic movement and their relationship with plants and how that you know, is different than than Native people's relationship with some of these plant species. And, you know, I'm sure you get, based on your line of work, I'm sure you get invited to 
conferences and to give talks about your work often and potentially to a Western psychedelic audience as opposed to predominantly Indigenous audience? I think that in the psychedelic space, I am like the antithesis of the psychedelic movement, right? Because I'm talking about extraction. I'm talking about appropriation. I'm talking about leave peyote alone. You know, I'm talking about all of those things. So I don't know if I necessarily get invited to a lot of psychedelic spaces because I I, I do have that opinion. And, and I, I mean, I, I do get invited to, to those spaces, but not at a level where other researchers are because they're pushing for these types of medicinal practices. They're pushing for legalization. They're pushing for decriminalization. They're pushing for clinical trials and things like that. And I'm on the opposite end of that. I'm like, slow down. I'm like, bring in Native American people. Let's have some consultation. Let's have some, some consent. Let's talk about what it is that Native American people want, right? Like, let's, let's slow this down. It's moving way too fast. Native American people need that opportunity to address this issue. I'm always trying to do my best in in advocating for those because that's where I feel like I am comfortable in that kind of space because that's really where my heart is, is in peyote preservation and also in preserving the right for peyote use by Native American people. I think that in regard to the psychedelic space and in regard to researchers and things like that, I, I, for me, one of my concerns is always that these spaces, even in the academy, in academics, that they are reaching out to truly Indigenous people. And when I'm talking about Native American people, I'm referring to people who are actually enrolled tribal members, enrolled tribal citizens. And I know that that's something that's very contentious for a lot of people who identify as being of Native American descent. But what we're experiencing now, and, and we've been experiencing it for a long time, it's just sort of coming, you know, it's, it's, it's got a larger platform now because of social media, but we're dealing with the issue of pretendians, people who are pretending to be Indians, right? And so there's a whole space where indigenous people are calling out these quote unquote pretendians. And I think that in the psychedelic space, we're also experiencing a little bit of that too, because we have organizations and we also have, you know, individuals and entities who are co-opting the indigenous voice who are saying, okay, I have one Native American person who believes that peyote should be made legal, who believes that peyote should be decriminalized. Therefore, we have the voice of a Native American person, and therefore, all Native American people believe this way. And that's not exactly true. And they could say that for myself, even though I'm an advocate for peyote preservation, I'm an advocate for Native American use of peyote. There's also Native Americans who don't believe that, who believe that it should be for everybody, who believe that, you know, this is not ours to control, things like that. And that's fine. We're all going to have differing opinions. But the dangerousness in non-Indigenous people pretending to be Native Americans is that they're projecting a voice and projecting opinions for people who have actually had to deal with those oppressive issues, those, you know, direct genocidal and governmental policies for to exterminate Native American people, right? 
for me, my biggest concern with what's happening with POD is that the Native American people are not given the full opportunity to address the POD issue in a way that they are comfortable with. And it's also not being addressed in a way that allows them to consent to what's happening in the psychedelic space and also in the legal spaces regarding city and state policy regarding POD. Well, Don, I'm so appreciative of you sharing all of this information and this research, and I'm really excited for listeners to kind of get this whole new perspective on this medicinal plant that we have here uh, in this, you know, kind of southwestern region. Yes, thank you again for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.